Guru Nation. Thank you so much. This is one. We got to give it up to LinkedIn. The dead internet theory or not. I don't want to start with that, Lisa, but we got Lisa Fazioli. LinkedIn's certainly not dead. It's alive. The community, I posted a meme about something about payments and slow site payments and who's to blame. And, you know, me personally, anecdotally and through interviews with different people, I assign maybe 80% of the blame to CROs and 20% to, to sponsors. Um, but maybe I need to revise that. Maybe I need to do like 60% CROs. I'm going to add 20% sites responsibility and then 20% sponsor. But I don't know. I mean, it's a moving moving uh, scale, sliding scale. But the community said, hey, you got to get Lisa on, Lisa Fazioli. And forget about site payments for a second. We're going to get to that. But there's only like a small subset of you guys interested in that. The greater Guru Nations interested in therapeutic strategy manager. And Lisa, after browsing her LinkedIn profile, and I'm really glad, Lisa, that you've, you've come on. Thank you so much for coming on. Can't believe I've never had you on. Like, we've been connected for a while. And Yeah, what's up with that? I, I don't know. It. Maybe that yeah. is the dead internet theory after all. Like, I, the algorithm didn't show me. I don't know what happened. But now you're on the radar for sure. And I can see that you're definitely beyond a worthy guest to be on this show. I mean, you're exactly what a lot of my audience strives to, to become. Oh, nice. So and that's, how, I think that's a, a whole other topic too, maybe not for today, but I, sometimes people will tell me like, why, you know, I write something really interesting and it goes absolutely nowhere. And why is that? And a lot of people just don't understand. There's a whole LinkedIn as a machine and there is a way to play with it, to make your content go somewhere. And depending how, to what extent you want to play with it, that's how far your stuff can go. So it's, it's, it's up to you to figure out to how much do you want to pander to that algorithm? Like I kind of have a, like, I'm willing to pander a little bit. I'm not, I don't have the tolerance to quite do it as much to have a ton of viral posts, but if that for listeners, some people, I always get that like, well, oh, you didn't see something that I wrote. And I'm like, I LinkedIn didn't feel like it should throw it to me. <laughs> so that's why I didn't see it. It wasn't because I, I read it and I thought, oh, this isn't interesting and I don't want to comment. I just never saw it. That's an entire new skill set that we didn't have to worry about 10 years ago, five, maybe even five years ago, but we have to worry about in a 2023 and beyond world. It's absolutely. I mean, I probably it's not out of the stretch of imagination that that we will be teaching webinars on how to do that in three, four or five years, maybe even sooner, like how to how to get your post noticed in the context of life sciences on LinkedIn. I mean, I could totally see that webinar. If someone okay. wants to do it, I think it's a good one. Go ahead. Be my guest. Um, <laughs> but you're right, Lisa. Um, so, Lisa, how does one even get to therapeutic strategy manager? And maybe maybe we can start with what is that actually? Yeah. So, so, so what it is, I ask myself that every morning. I'm like, how do I do this again? Um, so therapeutic strategy management in the context of, of the CRO that I work with. And as I understand, um, because I'm a little bit newer to these types of roles. So they go by 
different names. Sometimes that could be a director of strategy for maybe a smaller CRO. Um, at really, really large CROs, it might be a technical lead, um, a strategy technical lead. But regardless, it kind of strategy in the name kind of has an implication of, of the type of, of, of work that you're doing within your CRO. It can mean different things, just like any CRO job, that might mean something a little bit different outside of a CRO, but within a CRO, my role is when a, a client comes through in the very, very, very early stages. So sometimes a project manager will come to me and, and they're a little freaked out when they're getting ready to go into their first project management role because they don't quite understand when they hear that they're managing the timeline or they're planning for the study, they don't realize quite how much help or support they may have towards that. So typically when you're a project manager in a CRO, you have essentially inherited a strategy. They don't just start you and say, ah, we have a, a client and they want to do, um, you know, a phase two dermatology study for, I don't know, some kind of eczema cream. It, good luck, you know, what it, what, what, do whatever you want with it. Um, you get inherited a strategy and sometimes you don't necessarily get a strategy document or even a nice handover meeting, but you get a budget. Like your budget is essentially built off of the strategy. So you might not get anything more detailed sometimes. Sometimes you will, but sometimes you won't get anything more detailed than a budget and a very uh, brief document that tells you your scope. But essentially that is the strategy. So before you took it over as the project team on the post-award side, there is a team of people on the pre-award side that were doing all the planning around what the clinical trial should look like. From the CRO. So yes, within the CRO. It could also have happened, uh, the sponsor may have taken it upon themselves to do their own strategy. That's not uncommon. So a sponsor will often come to clients and say, we, you know, we know exactly what we're going to do and we know pretty we're pretty certain how much it should cost. We should be in this many regions. We should have this many sites. Enrollment should go for this long. Those are all kind of the strategic mapping of the clinical trial. And some clients will have been working on that for 10 years. They know exactly what their phase three is gonna look like for a really long time. They know exactly where they're going. Sometimes a client has absolutely no idea where they're going. They, they have absolutely no idea what they're, uh, especially within, within early phase trials, as they're thinking to themselves from the very beginning, the most fundamental question, where do we even want our drug to be available? Like what countries are we even going into at the end of the day? Because ultimately that kind of informs your strategy. So at a certain point, you have to be in the countries that you want to have your drug marketed in. Um, but up to a certain point, you don't. That's maybe irrelevant. So you might be able to pick some uh, countries that have a more favorable regulatory environment for you to work in. And so that's, that's kind of the role of, of a team of people who work in strategy. I'm kind of a strategy generalist. So I know on your show, you've talked to feasibility managers and feasibility directors. Those are also strategists. They just don't, they're, they're not using the name, right? They're strategists within a very specific area. How can we ensure that the sites that we're using are going to be able to perform? They're going to, and it, and it seems simple enough when you have a simple study, but sometimes this can get 
bananas complicated when you are working across many different regions. Maybe the regulatory environment looks very different between regions. Maybe the standard of care for a drug is very different between regions. Like it can get very complex. <laughs> so sometimes it's pretty straightforward and the budget will inform what the strategy is. If you have you know, X amount of money to complete a clinical trial, then I'm gonna tell you how many sites are gonna be in your budget. And based on, on conversations or based on our estimates with sites, we'll have a good idea of how long it will take to enroll that population. But sometimes everything is unknown. Where we wanna market the drug is unknown where you know any region that would be a good place to get going like all of this at the very beginning is a lot of times really unknown so that's what our strategy team does at, at the very beginning i kind of think of us as we're like the map makers and your project manager is like the captain so they start with the map and maybe that map was like really good and they just they follow it and maybe they get that map and it was complete garbage and they have to kind of revise the map as they go and say, oh, this just won't work. We're not going to be able to get a study started up. You know, enrollment period is a year. You want us to go into X country. It'll take a year and a half for us to even get regulatory approval there because something weird happened recently that maybe wasn't on the on the planning agenda of the folks that were doing the, the kind of the pre-study uh, strategy. So things can change. And by the time it comes to a project manager, they can kind of revise the map. Um, but that's kind of how I think of the roles being a little bit different. They don't have to invent the wheel entirely when they inherit a study. They have a budget and the budget is kind of uh, intrinsically linked to what the strategy is of the trial. So that's kind of the difference of, of a, a strategy yeah. person on the pre-award side versus the, the PM. I mean, it makes sense. Um, thank you for breaking it down. I can tell this can be a great episode. Oh, there's so many different directions we can go. But as you were saying that, it makes sense to me. And really, you could break down any job, any role as a strategist. I mean, even at the at the site level, study coordinators, right? Like, yeah, you're a coordinator. But at the end of the day, what are you in that context that you just explain or set up you're a strategist as well like you get a protocol you think you have a plan for how to recruit patients then you start doing it then you realize hey this strategy i've actually used those words this strategy is not going to work we got to find a different strategy to get these patients pre-screened and enrolled so in a way everyone's a strategist it's just whether it's on the macro or micro side of. And the site, the site is really these strategists, like you're saying, they're these strategists for getting patients. And sometimes clients don't always understand that mm. they, they think that we're really, you know, I correct them a lot of the time. Uh, so, but they think that we're kind of telling you guys how to do it. Like the site is sitting there. I don't know that they literally think this, but to some extent, they think the site's sitting there and has like, no, we don't know how we're going to find patients. And they're kind of looking at the CRO, like how are patients going to get into the study? And I really emphasize with clients, because I believe this, getting patients into the study, besides some things are on a, on a very macro level, but, but the actual, the day-to-day, -day, finding them that day to enroll in your study, that's done at the site 
And it's less so about me giving your site a strategy. And like, I have a high level strategy for how it will get done, right? You're probably way ahead um, because you know your area. So it's more in this case with our sites, it's like managing a relationship with our site so that they're motivated to, to complete the strategy that they're the ones really on the ground able mm -hmm. to come up with the most efficient and effective way to get patients enrolled on the trial. So that is not a perspective that every single person knows to have necessarily, but they probably should have it. That as you're saying, a hundred percent getting patients on the trial, the site is, is really the, the kind of the hidden strategist there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and really I am more in like a, in a macro sense and I've drawn my experience from when I've, I've done that myself. Right. But I'm just very, <laughs> uh, longly agreeing with you. Well, uh, we're going to get into the topic of CROs and different, I guess, myths or industry, uh, misconceptions maybe, which I have many, I guess, myself. I'm sure some of my memes are not accurate. Um, I think they're accurate, but yeah, I, I you know, they, I, I think some of them are funny, but you they do may better not all be than accurate. not accurate, though. <laughs> yeah, hyper hyperbole helps. But as you were talking about that, you know, it, I kept coming back to the quote that Mike Tyson had. He said, "Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth," and I think sponsors. I've seen sponsors deal with this. Everyone has a plan. Every sponsor has a plan until a patient actually joins their study or screens in their study. And one of the things that's been killing me lately, and I know a lot of my colleagues at the site level, are these exploratory endpoints that sponsors on some strategic level think it's a good idea. And I don't blame them. If I were a sponsor, I would also want to throw in bunch of exploratory endpoints why not why do multiple trials yeah, you just let's do see one? If you, you lose weight also on this drug why not let's yeah see. why not and then throw in some quality of life stuff i mean i know back in the day when i was doing studies 05 06 07 they threw in like quality of life economic outcome surveys i get it those are not difficult but now they're throwing in like certain lab exploratory endpoints and now you got to go to another facility and get another procedure maybe an mri maybe something else it's it's there is there is a point and i'm sure you have this conversation a lot with sponsors to where you have to balance your exploratory endpoints what else you're trying to get out of the study all the juice you're trying to squeeze out of the orange versus why not just try to get this drug approved right yeah. like I'm sure you have this conversation a lot. I don't know if it's frustrating or not. Does it come up a lot? So it comes up. I'm not quite the person to lead this particular conversation with clients because I do not do consulting on trial design. So there are some strategists that are a little bit sharper than I am and they will do design consulting. But for me, I don't, I do not do, I don't kind of hold that clinical scientist role within my strategic role. Um, but it's something we have to take into consideration on, on kind of its most, like you're saying, is it easier to just get a drug approved? Like just get it through the, through the process and get it approved. And then you can look into, I mean, I, I have had some, some clients and I, I have to be 
sometimes I have to be really, really vague in how I describe something because it, I'm very paranoid about it. Anyone thinking I'm talking directly about a client. Me so, too. Me too. But I, so, so, right. So sorry. Sometimes I'm like, I, 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 I hear myself talking and I'm like, I'm not saying anything that really says. We all get it. We all get okay. it. <laughs> so I have to be very, very vague, but we, I, I was recently meeting with a client and they had a drug for one particular, you know, one, one particular indication. But at the end of the day, they wanted this drug. There was nothing that this miracle drug like couldn't fix. There was nothing it couldn't fix. Um, it was it was a magic drug, and it really could just fix any any and everything under the sun. And this was, um, you know, at at some point, it wasn't necessarily through through my CRO or through my consulting um, that that got narrowed down. But at some point, uh, they were sharing previous conversations, and they realized. You, you can't just get a magic pill, or this wasn't a pill, but you can't just get a magic pill uh, 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 approved to treat just absolutely everything under the sun. And so they they went with one one very, very specific indication. Um, but I've, I've seen that growing and, and ballooning, just like you've observed with protocols. Sometimes I will get a protocol and it is when you just do your basic scan of a protocol to see like how how big of a pain is this study going to be to run? <laughs> and you just do your, your main kind of perusing of it. And it's like pages and pages of, of secondary endpoints. I'm like, oh, this is going to be. Uh, and sometimes we, we do have folks that, this isn't a literal example, but it, it gets the point across. But you have people not just wanting to collect like a million endpoints, but you have folks that are... They're scientifically minded, but they're not clinical trial minded in how it would actually work with a human being. So they might look at something, and again, this is this is made up, but they might say, Oh, we think it's gonna do, you know, something in in the in the brain and it's gonna help for the better. So can we just go ahead and and, and crack their skulls open and take a look inside? And you're like, no, these are healthy volunteers. No one's ever asked to do that. But they ask things that are very uh, not too far from that, like really right. insane, ridiculous. Um, and I'm like, no, of course you absolutely cannot ask it like, for one. It's like no. a it's a hyperbole, but it, but it illustrates a greater point in that they're asking, they're not thinking about the actual end user of that study, which is a patient, yes. um, and their their time, their convenience, their willingness to participate their willingness to continue to be in the study um much less worrying about the coordinator's ability to keep their sanity uh through all this so uh, yeah so is that like do you notice that that's a common theme among sponsors and is it more common amongst the larger ones or the smaller ones it's in so my experience is is pretty biased because my experience sits um, probably 90% of the work that I've done in the industry has been with smaller clients. So to me, they're always, I, if I had to guess, it's probably more common within, within smaller clients. Um, but again, my, my experience is quite biased towards that answer, but thinking, I mean, it definitely seems like folks that are in, in especially in the very early stages, they haven't quite, especially within small biotechs, where it 
small biotechs can be just a handful of people that are, are working on this. And it might just be uh, someone who's, you know, a, a CEO who may or may not have a science background or, or may have you, there's kind of a diminishing return. Like we have areas that we, we specialize in. And as you get like into the, to the realm of like really, really, really smart person, you can't be really, really smart in every single area. So you might have someone that is, yeah, they're, they're a P they're a CEO, they're a PhD, but it's in something like not related at all <laughs> to what the drug is. So there's kind of a diminishing return on how, how smart you can be in any one area. Mm -hmm. So you I don't want to say they're like not smart people because anyone I've worked with in a small biotech, they're there. These are, these are smart folks that we're working with. They might just not have expertise within, uh, or, or the, the right kinds, right? So it, it takes an army of people to put uh, clinical trials together. So they are, are in the very early phases Sometimes you you get a protocol with a younger company and it's it's like really it's really interesting. And again, it has that like, well, we'll just we'll just peek inside their brains and see if uh, you know something interesting is going on in there. Um, so and, and definitely the the inclination to want to just test for every single thing under the sun. So it happens, it's part of general strategic planning um, to help a client be able to understand what would be what would be better for you to get depending on what your goals are. Now, also some, some sponsors are not necessarily, we're always thinking in terms of a, of a client that is going, they want to have cash flow into their, in, into their company, but not everyone is looking for uh, the other end of it, getting a, a marketed drug approved. Sometimes they're just looking to sell very, very, very quickly. So sometimes that million endpoints can say, ah, wouldn't this be attractive for a larger company? We could only run one trial at the beginning to look at just, a, a, you know, if it does a hundred different things, but maybe a larger company could take this drug on and say, we'll run 10 clinical trials because that strategy works better for us. And we can go ahead and try right out the gate to get an approval. So not every sponsor is is like in a linear way, like we're a small biotech and we're trying to get cash flow into our company by getting a marketed drug. They may say, hey, we're a small biotech and we're looking to be a no biotech uh, in a year or two years after a clinical trial because we we sold it and we're on to the next thing. So every yeah. every client, I think that drives a little bit of it as well. So yeah. everyone has a different approach i think some of the i think this should be required reading for everyone in our industry this book just came out from breakthrough to blockbuster for those listening um and by the way i should have said this at the beginning all the links to lisa's well her linkedin profile will be underneath the show notes if you're listening and underneath the youtube video so go connect with her she obviously knows what she's talking about maybe we could shift gears and then come back to to nerd out on some of this other stuff but career career seeker i've seen you post you've you've done some like you've given some advice for career seekers um you started out coordinator then project manager study manager manager is a lot in your titles to now strategy so if someone wants manager, to get yeah. Yeah, strategy <laughs> manager, so if somebody wants to get to where you are and this primarily you've worked for, I've looked at your profile, at least one small, small, uh, pharma, right. Or one small, yeah, sponsor, small, biotech. small biotech. 
and then the rest was like smaller sierras yeah and there's been some there there's been a there's been bigger CROs that not everything's on the resume, but <laughs> I've, ah. I've, done, I've done little bits of time with, with some bigger, uh, with a bigger CRO that I uh, didn't particularly care for. Um, is that a good way to describe it? Doing time? Is that like accurate? Yeah, it, it felt like time. I did, I did, mm. I did my 90 days <laughs> and then I said, I, I can't do this for a second longer. And Can I, we talk about that a little bit? Cause uh, yeah. Those big CROs, I think where most of my memes, most of sites' frustrations, and now thinking back anecdotally, the majority of my frustrations as a site owner or a coordinator have been largely directed or involved with large CROs. Not small. Now that I'm actually thinking about it, the smaller CROs, I mean, they're not perfect, but you can usually get at least clarity of what the issue is, like the cause of the issue, quicker. I think at these big CROs, mainly when it comes to payments, you get nothing. You get like a black hole. Like it's like this just giant thing that keeps expanding. Uh, the mystery just increases as you continue doing the study rather than getting easier for you to figure out as a site. I'm like, what the heck's happening with our payments or just anything in general. So I've, it's telling that, and they say when you read something, sometimes focus on what you don't see. And on your LinkedIn profile, I didn't see Big Sierra, but you said, yeah, well, I did my time. So explain to the Guru Nation first before we nerd out with the sites. Yeah what so, the benefits of big CRO career versus small CRO career. So I think, and I don't want to bash necessarily like sometimes I do, but I join the club, bash, join the club. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to bash like, like big CRO or say that like a small CRO or a mid-sized CRO is, is the right thing because it, it depends on what kind of, not just from a, a strategy perspective, what you're trying to accomplish, but for, not even thinking, you know, taking off my strategy cap, you know, but thinking about our people, right? Our people that want fulfilling jobs. So the strategy for them can look different depending on what kind of person you are. You, I have friends that really do like working in big CROs and they can't imagine themselves working in a small CRO. And when I tell them some of the shenanigans that I've done in small CROs, they think, oh, that'd be like, I couldn't do that and vice versa. So it's not that there's one, like one is the correct way and everyone work on getting into the right type of company because there is no right type of company. What you do have to know though, is that all CROs are a little bit vulnerable to lots of changes. So you can start with a, a small CRO, um, and then that small CRO kind of gets, uh, they merge with another one and now they're kind of medium and then another one and another one. So it's always changing. So in general, this is not always an industry to just, I, I, I always say like a CRO is not a place where you join it to get a gold watch for 30 years of service mm -hmm. at the end of it. Like you have to be able to adapt and um, 
hiring is always happening and layoffs are always happening. That doesn't mean your job is necessarily in danger. It just means that some huge, massive study came to, you know, was maybe pulled from one CRO and went to another CRO. So now your CRO is doing layoffs and another CRO is doing hires to, you know, it could, it could literally be the same people working on a trial that came from um, one place. Talk about that, like 18 BT. It could literally be like, Hey, I'm the same team. I came from the other, we lost the project and now I'm over here working on the project. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of change. That's a constant within, within CRO life. But as far as like big versus small, where I struggled with the particular big CRO that I was working with was that it is a, a huge, enormous bureaucracy. So if I had to guess why like site payments don't happen, maybe when they should, there's many reasons. I can go into to several reasons why I think that happens. But within, you know, very specific to a large CRO, it is a, it is a huge, huge, huge bureaucracy. They have taken big companies with other big companies and just kind of, now we are together. And there hasn't always been a great process for how like change management is really hard within a CRL. I don't have ideas. Like I don't do that kind of consult. I mean, I could if, if someone wanted me to, but I, I couldn't at this point say like exactly how they should, um, Actually, I could say that that's a different conversation. Yes, I actually have a lot of ideas for them, how they can make it better. But it's it's a it's a bureaucratic nightmare has been my experience in large CRO. So within a large CRO, you have to navigate lots and lots of systems. And I know you've talked about this at the site level, right? Like these systems grow exponentially and they grow pretty exponentially within a large CRO as well, especially if you you don't have a, a kind of a, a a rule that. So, what the happiest I ever was at a CRO was working for a CRO that said, "These are all the systems we use, and you know, if you don't like them, go to another CRO. Like this is the EDC we use. This is like this is what we use, and that's not always great for like customer service. Like some clients are not going to be happy with that, and they're going to say, "Oh, I want to use this." you know, really obscure EDC that no one's ever heard of. And it's really important that we use it for consistency within our organization. It was nice that we all used the same tools and a big CRO, especially one that wants to give all this flexibility to clients. I'm not saying it's wrong from a business perspective, but from a, like just how we work with one another, you can have people that have joined from a, a, a team and they're joining to just kind of jump in and, Hey, I'm helping out here. Oh, but I've never used any of these systems. Like the systems also don't talk with one another as much as there's nice flow charts and presentations about how they very much talk with one another. They do not talk with one another. So I was working with this particular at this particular place. And again, maybe it's top secret. No one can find it. <laughs> um, but at this place, <laughs> yeah, it's that not I, even I, on your LinkedIn. <laughs> not even on my LinkedIn. And, and I do that so that I can, I can comfortably give like this, this critique, right? Mm. Um, because it, it helps people. So I, I kind of keep that under my hat. Smart. But with, with this, uh, you know, particular trial that I was working on, it was a, it was a massive, you know, just a, a zillion sites that were, that were on the trial and all of the tech we were using 
was just fundamentally flawed. It did not, nothing, nothing talked or integrated very well. So at the end of the day, this massive, like, I want to say like $85 million phase three study was run on like Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> like that's <laughs> at the end of the day, that's how this study was run because the technology was so fundamentally flawed. And yeah. anytime, you know, you show dashboards to, we, we always do that to clients, right? And I was just giving a, pro a presentation to a client the other day and they were saying like, oh, tell me about your, you know, like what's so special about your, you know, your dashboards. And I was like, well, the special part about them is that they work <laughs> because that's not <laughs> going to be your experience. You can have the same screenshot and you can have the same demo. Um, my goodness, you know, I have a lot of, you know, I lived in, in Seattle for years. I have a lot of tech friends. I know that most tech demos are not showing you what it does. They're just showing you a really nice veneer. And that's how a lot of our, our demos are as well. And that's how a lot of demos that are given are said, hey, this is this is how it would work. Um, so that was that was like one of my selling points to a client just the other day. They're like, well, I've seen this dashboard everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, did it work the way you thought it was going to on the last study <laughs> you were on? Because ours works. So yeah, does it work? <laughs> helpful. Because sometimes I, I have been on studies where just nothing holds right. And you have to do this like Enron math to like figure out who's actually in your study, how things are, because, oh, you know, you know, two enrolled at this site and we can't get them out of the EDC or if there's a glitch and it's pulling, uh, it's pulling some data in the CTMS from somewhere it doesn't belong. And so you're always having to comb through. And that was actually a huge part of my job in, in, in a different CRO actually was just working on the glitches of how our <laughs> systems did not fundamentally did not talk with one another. So that'd be about an hour a day of just going through and, and seeing it's kind of like how you, this was at the big CRO. This was this, uh, I'm actually kind of doing a, uh, kind of a mix of a few different okay. series because I've, I've had this, this problem, this kind of technology uh, talking to one another problem in, in a few different places. But Before we get into like the geek stuff about site payments and A and B teams for CROs, just if you had to give advice, like tangible advice, maybe there's a coordinator watching, maybe someone's not even started working in this industry. Somebody like either super entry level or just got started yeah. and they say, okay, I like this Lisa gal. I think I could do strategy. What advice do you have for them? So if ultimately, so if you're starting and you're kind of in that coordinator realm, then strategy you know, you can, you, like I said earlier, there's a few different ways to work in strategy. So I am working at a very, uh, a very generalist level. That's, that's pretty comprehensive of like the whole strategy for the entire clinical trial. You're going to need like 10 years of experience at least before I'm, I'm one of the most junior people on my team. So it's going to require a lot of experience um, within either sponsor side or, or CRO. CROs tend to like people from CROs and sponsors tend to like people from sponsors. Ah, like attracts like. Yes. Uh, it, hydrophilic, hydrophobic. It's the same thing with people. 
Yes, I've, I've done some posts on this as well. Like that's kind of one of your questions that you ask yourself, do, where do I, where do I fit in? Do I want to be sponsor side or do I want to be CRO side? And it's not that you can't switch. I've switched. I've worked in small biotech, right? Did, did, um, I, I enjoyed working in small biotech, but I, for most of my career, have found myself on the CRO side. There are some things that you'll be attracted to on, on either end, working in, in, whether it's biotech or it's working for a CRO. So the first question, and I have some posts about that, but is to, to kind of figure out where, where you want to find yourself. And it's hard to get in to either one of them. So neither are easy, an easier path. I think they're both equally hard to get into. They're ultra, ultra, ultra selective careers until you get in. It's, you're kind of like a member of the club, especially within C again, they're both selective, but CRO, I can just speak more to why that is than I can with the, well, I can actually to the small biotechs as well, but to see, so I think it's a better conversation to have around CROs, why it, it's but very hard to get in mostly because their, their model is just not super supportive to entry level workers. So if you find yourself as someone who wants to, to get into CRO, why I, why I like CRO is because there's room for advancement once you get your foot in the door. And I've done some, I've done some posts around this where I, I want to bring this up because I feel like it, it, it's really relevant. So when I was younger and I was trying to like get a job as, as like a dishwasher at a restaurant, right? And I'd go to all these places and they'd all have like the hiring sign on the door and they'd be like, oh, okay, we're hiring for a dish. We're hiring for whatever, right? All positions hiring. And I'd go in and I'd be like, I really want to be a dishwasher here. Like I was really like eager to be a dishwasher. Like I really wanted to be one. And like no one, no one wanted to hire me at all. And I couldn't like figure out why and I, and I carried that with me because I'm, I'm so sad. I'm a really sensitive person. And so I carried that with me and I would just think like, they don't think I have what it takes. Like, they don't think I have what it takes to wash the dishes. Like, I'm just, I don't know why, but I'm not the right person to like work at a restaurant and wash dishes. And that wasn't the case at all. It was just that that sign on the door, that hiring sign is always up. And so you get the job when the person who normally washes the dishes doesn't show up for a couple of days in a row. And then they decide to hire you and say, all right, you're the dishwasher person now because we have, we have a spot that opened. And even though this is, you know, CRO is a very, 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 very highly skilled place to work. It still holds that similar concept. A CRO would love to actually hire you. They'd, they'd love to hire everyone that they can um, because you, you know, in a billable position, you can be very profitable to them. The problem is selling you to a sponsor. So they might be in, you know, you might be applying for jobs at a CRO and they could be looking at your application and saying, ah, at this time, I don't have a sponsor who would take you. Like the sponsor that I have is looking for someone to manage one of their projects. And, you know, it's, it's a rare disease that kind of, you know, we have this, they have this joke in tech a lot. They're like, oh, they want me to work in a programming language that was invented like, you know, four years ago and they want 10 years of experience. We have a little bit of that here too. Like, oh, a rare disease, a genetic mutation that was just discovered, you know, six years ago, they want someone with 10 years of experience in it. That happens in our industry too. Sometimes the pickiness of a client is is really, really, really 
um, sometimes silly and unnecessary. There's times where it is necessary, but there are times often where, where it isn't. So when you have a client that is receptive, like I'm say I'm hiring for a CRO and I get your application and you apply to me today and you're, you're kind of entry level into CRO world. I, I don't, I have that client that's like, a, they're looking for a unicorn. I can't put you there. Then we have a client that says, I just want someone who I think is a go-getter who will work really hard for me. Who's, who's gonna, you know, communicate really well. I want to, I want to chat with them every day about the clinical trial. Who's going to be receptive to that. Then they're going to look at your application that, that might be, you know, you apply three months later to the exact same position and they have a different client on the other end of it. And now they're willing to make a hire. So getting into the industry is a lot, at least in CRO, in my experience, it's a lot of being in the right place at the right time. And, and it's unfortunate that I don't have more substantial advice. No. I wish I could say, put this magic, you know, thing on your resume. There's a lot of stuff out there that borders like superstition of like write in white text so that you'll get through. That's as far as I know, that's not how it works. The algorithm, there's no, the... Yeah. There's no like <laughs> magic way to subliminal it. message for the AI. Hire me. <laughs> yeah. so, like, put a picture of you. You're drinking a can of Coke and put that in your resume, you know, imprint. You it, like, will hire me, but no, what, me. What you brought up makes a lot of sense. It's it kind of echoes or parallels what I've been saying over the years. Like the the fact that you brought up generalists so many times, I'm really glad because that's kind of been something I've been saying a lot. Like over the years, I had this. I have this theory that everybody wants a generalist, but nobody wants to start you off as a gen. Like no one hires you to be a generalist. Maybe at your level, yes, but. At most levels in this industry, like 80% of positions, they need a specialist, but they would love if you're a generalist as well. So the problem with the dishwasher thing is they think you're not going to ever become a generalist if all you're doing is saying, hey, I want to be a dishwasher, I want to be a dishwasher, I want to be a dishwasher. First of all, it's not believable. Second of all, it shows that you have no ambition to be something beyond that. And they don't want that, but they need that. But they don't want that. And I think the same thing is with sites and CROs and all this stuff. Like right now I need a startup specialist. But it'd be really nice to eventually have you be our strategy manager. And that's the hard part. It's like getting people to do both. So to be a generalist, you kind of have to be a multi-specialist over the years, over the decades. And it's, and especially a lot of, and I speak a lot to project management just because that's where I've spent a majority of my career and project management is so you have to have such a, such a depth and breadth of knowledge. It's a, it's a really, really hard position <laughs> to have and, and getting, having it within a CRO is you've do anything that you can to, if you want to work in a CRO. And, and I would, I sometimes ask people like, this is what it looks like to work in a CRO though. So before you scratch and claw your way into the door, consider if it's even a door that you want to like enter into, because it might not be because it, it, it's, there are some things that are very, very, very challenging about working in a CRO and it's not going to be the right fit for every person. It's not even the right fit for me every day because I'm like a human being and it can be exhausting. So some days I'm like, oh, this is, 
I, <laughs> there's something else I can do because I'm tired. Um, but on most days, and that's what I tell people, you know, to be, your, your career, you should have more days that are like good days than bad days. Right. And then, you know, stick with stick, stay at your job. <laughs> if you have more good days than bad days, stay where you are, don't move. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, a lot of folks think they want to be in a CRL for, um, especially, you know, depending on where they're coming from, if they're coming sometimes from site side, they hear, okay, you, you make more money in a CRL and they're, they might not be wrong. You, you, that may actually be true, but the, it's a different type of job. So consider there's, and there's a lot of ways to make money in this world. So if you want to make money, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can, you can do that. So is it substantially more than, than a similar role from a site to a CRO? Maybe, maybe not. Um, But it's, it's something that you gotta, you just gotta know it. And it's hard to know without having done the job. So you watch these kinds of videos. I have conversations with people and I say, this is what it, this is what it really looks like to work in a CRO. Is that for you before you scratch and claw your way into the door? Because for a lot of folks, you will have to scratch and claw your way into the door. It hasn't felt like that in the past couple of years. Anyone who's entered the market in the last two years kind of just showed up in the in the post-COVID labor crunch. And they showed up and they were like, and I see posts like that all the time on LinkedIn. They're like, I was something else, you know, something completely unrelated. And I went into a CRO and it was an easy transition. And let me tell you all about it. And I'm like, you are the exception because you have leveraged opportunity from a black swan event in history that may never be repeated, but that is not most people's experience getting into a CRO. It's hard. I, I, it's really hard to make the transition. So, but I would tell people not again, just like the dishwasher scenario, like don't carry that with you. It, it isn't personal. You will get a lot of rejection and I have been that same big CRO that I was speaking to. I applied with them, I want to say over over like six or seven years, I applied with them probably at least five times. And if I knew how disjointed and bureaucratic the hiring process was, I would have probably applied a hundred times. <laughs> I didn't know that. You you were there 90 try, days, right? right? You were there yeah, 90 days? 90 days. But I tried, I scratched and clawed my way to get into that organization and I was rejected many, many, many times. They did not want to hire Lisa over the years. No interest, no interest in hiring me. And then I went, you know, finally was just at the right place at the right time. And they said, yep, we want to give you a chance. Come on in, be a project manager for us. Was a project manager, 90 days, walked out the door. They probably call me every month or send an email or a LinkedIn or some kind of communication saying, you're a really good project manager here. Come back. Like, we'd love for you to come back. Like, what can we do to make things different? Like, we want you to come back. And I say that just to give, give the illustration that like, I am the same person that was rejected <laughs> over the course of years right. for five times with this CRO, worked with them, didn't even stay, couldn't, couldn't even be bothered to stay with them longer than 90 days. And they were like, we, we want, we even want you back. So proving, getting the chance uh, everywhere I've ever been, I've been able to prove myself and anyone that's for one, I wish I could give bonus points to an application somehow. Like if I could wait it, if someone was even like watching a video like this, like if you're even watching this video, 
you're even on LinkedIn trying to connect with people, like you are career driven. And I wish there was a way to like quantify that <laughs> in an application. Um, because most people that I, I refer, they do really, really, really well. Um, they're, they're interested and they're driven and they're hungry. That just, I am too. It doesn't always come across in, in a resume that goes into a system and gets lost in a black hole. But it hole. does, so. it does come across in, or at least it should come across in the actual interview. Comes across, if you can get it. If you yeah, can get, you so can when I say it. I was rejected by those, yeah, I never even made it to the, to the interview process. Could mm-hmm. never even have a conversation with these Do you people. think that's like faulty algorithm or what do you blame that on if you had to put if blame I, somewhere? Yeah, if I had to guess, it, it was a combination of, in a smaller, in a smaller CRO, they might've been saying, we just don't have a direct client for you to you to work on within a larger CRO, they could probably find the right client. Um, so could just be, you know, I don't know, could just be sheer volume. Uh, as I've heard from folks that work in like internally in recruiting for big CROs, they do use that, what is it like that ATS or whatever the acronym is, like they do use that um, algorithm to like sort resumes. But if you're a good recruiter, you don't rely on the robot to just tell you these are your five candidates. Like you still go through. So there is, there is an algorithm. There is something kind of a robot working against you. But if you're any recruiter that's worth your salt, you take a peek at those rejected resumes or you you should. So to answer your question, I'm not sure why I, I didn't, couldn't quite pass the bureaucracy of the hiring process. Um, But then at some point I did. And again, the moral of my story is I'm, I'm the same person that was rejected by a CRO over and over again. I'm the same person that got hired by the same CRO, the same person that they still wanted to, to rehire. Right? right. So I, I'm sensitive and I take, I take any rejection like really, really, really hard. And I'm sure a lot of our viewers do as well, <laughs> but I, I try to like carry that with me. Like I'm, I'm the same I'm the same person across all these scenarios, right? Right. Yeah, I tell people all the time, like, don't let rejection. I mean, we all we all are hurt to it to different varying degrees of of um, of, of hurt or emotions. But like myself, if I were to apply, I've been doing this almost twenty years. If I were to apply at you know ten jobs that I'm qualified for, I'd probably only hear back from like two or three of them, and that's yeah. That's nothing to do with me. That's to do with, like you said, a lot of random things like this mystery box of how they sort through the CVs. But some of it might be due to me. Like, oh, no, this guy does too many podcasts, whatever. There's always something. There's always something or a reason, even if it's an arbitrary reason for why someone doesn't think you're the right fit. So what? Move on. Like, there's other roles. And I think you bring up a good point, And I'm glad you brought that up for the career seekers. Now let's appease the site owners and the CRO, the study directors. I'm going to, I'm going to read a post that you wrote about a month ago. All right. right. There is no such thing as an A team and a B team in a CRO. This is an industry urban legend. Never. And I mean, ever have I seen a coordinated effort to present a lesser skilled team to one client over another or send a decoy team to a bid defense. This would be logistically impossible. So why does it feel this way? 
and before we get into why it feels that way, we'll get into it. But are are you sure? <laughs> so clar- clarification on my on my post. Sometimes you know, you just put something up on the internet, and you literally think like no one's reading anything that you write, and that's oh, they read that people read it. And then that, that actually, that concept of people reading my stuff makes me like really nervous to put stuff on there because (laughs) I kind of like thinking like, Oh, nobody's reading this. Who cares? Um, so, so let me say that there is no, there may be an A team and a B team or what feels like an A team or B team to you, but there is no intentional effort, at least that I've seen to sort of do a bait and switch with a client and say, let's show them this really great, uh, a great project manager, a great data manager, a great uh, named team that we'll put together for a bid defense meeting. And then once they sign the piece of paper, let's give them like the ghouls that we have in the back and like send those out to them. <laughs> like there's, there's no intentional effort for that, uh, for that to happen. Um, all right. Do you want to? You want me to tell you some reasons? <laughs> mm, sure, we could get reasons, but so there's no intentional effort. But I've talked to enough study directors at sponsor level to where, whether it's intentional or not, they feel that's what they got. Yeah. So, and this is kind of directly what what that post explains is this first point, right? Is that a lot of times. There is a huge gap between once we put a proposal and a team together for a project and once that project is actually awarded. So it's not uncommon to have totally different people given to you when it comes time to start your project. So resourcing in the pre-award phase is an absolute nightmare. We have so many opportunities coming to us. And we have to think about each realistic opportunity. You know, we kind of sort them out. And when an opportunity comes to a CRO, we have to ask ourselves, are we, if we're smart, we're asking, are we the right CRO to, to complete this clinical trial? So, okay, so we've weeded some of them out, but now we still have a lot of proposals. It tends to be, once you're in the proposal phase, a typical client is usually, um, they're, they're probably going out to a uh, maybe eight uh, potential CROs. So from eight potential CROs, then you're probably going to do a bid defense. With, if you're nice, you'll just do one with the one that you're pretty sure, sure that you want to hire. Um, but some will have, it could be a requirement, whether it's of their organization or their board, that they have to do multiple, even if they're like, this one will never use them. So even when you get to bid defense, you could still be doing five bid defenses, just depending on, on the policies uh, of the sponsor. So that's a lot of, you know, we I could potentially be naming resources at the time of a proposal where I have eight times more opportunities then I'm going to have then down to five times more opportunities. So at that point, if I have all of those studies awarded, I have to find different people if if they all come to fruition, or if I have other studies that, that are starting up when, you know, later I had, it's really, really, really hard to make. That's kind of like my biggest takeaway. It's almost impossible to say like, this is your team and we can't hold them. So if you're thinking, 
oh, I'm, I'm going to probably, you know, we're looking to sign a contract six months later, then I'm looking six months later, this is who I have on deck and would be available. They're coming off of project X, they're going to be the perfect person for you. Six months later, turns into a year later, well, they already started working on another study, or maybe they signed the contract really soon, you know, same thing. Yep. So the timing is, is very, very, very difficult to manage resources, because there's, you know, it's an, it's an actual person, I'm not giving you you know, lumber for your project and I can get you any, any, which kind of it, I, I have to um, give you like an actual person and that person may need to change. So that perception, even if I'm giving you a better person, sometimes it will feel you'll, you'll kind of have that sense of, Oh, well, this isn't the same person <laughs> that you said a different person was going to be here. But you know what? That's one, that's one reason. So the, these complaints I received, and it's mainly because these are the only ones that will talk to me. I'm I'm not I'm not connected enough to the big pharma world to where, you know, I'm in the good old boys club. I, I mean, I'm in the outliers club, like the outsiders club, where I'm like, you know, all these scrappy people, maybe startup biotech, small CROs, site owners. There's like a that's like all different ecosystem. You've got the big pharma ecosystem where they have their people. It's mainly the good old boys club. And then you got the outsiders, which is basically everyone else. Those are the people I've talked to. Yeah. What they all say, or they all point towards the same thing, is that big pharma, so like the top 10, top 15 pharma, they know this is a problem, A and B teams. So they have these, whatever they're called, the words escaping me, but they have these contracts with the CROs where these are like our employees. They're yours, but they're ours. Like we'll give them our email. Functional service provider, I think it's called, right? FSP? Yeah, FSP. FSP, there you go. It came, it's the caffeine. It's kicking in. So FSPs. So why do they do that then if this is not a problem? Okay, so I would also ask these, and again, I I, I don't I don't have experience working a lot with the big pharmas, right? So Maybe there's, and, and it's probably true that there are some different pressures that are put on the system when you have big pharma clients um, versus small. So I might not be the, the perfect person to answer that question there. But when a client says consistently like, oh, we always have, we always have the, you know, the, the B team. I would ask, like, have they ever had an A team? Like with the CRO? Because some will, will say like, oh, we've never, then I'm like, okay, then you might just not quite understand what you're getting. When your you, expectations. <laughs> your expectations may not, like, you know, there's there's that saying, like, if, if you've only had, uh, you know, if, if you've only ever had <laughs> bad roommates, like, you're the bad roommate. Like, <laughs> like right, you're the right, bad roommate. Right. So, so have you ever had a team? That's what I, the, the, kind of the first question that I'd ask have you ever had an A-team before? Because if you've never had an A-team before, then you may be fundamentally unprepared to utilize your CRO as a resource because you might not quite understand the, the right service that they provide you. Or if you've had an A-team like somewhere else and then you feel like you had a, a B-team with another CRO, the heart, because I, I care about the people, right? So when I hear people say like, oh, they're 
B team, I get defensive, not so much because I'm, I'm justifying like how CROs do, do things. I'm more thinking from a perspective of, oh my, I wouldn't want someone to think that any of my friends were part of the B team because everyone I know within CROs are really highly dedicated and capable people and they work their tails off. So that's where some of my defensiveness comes. I'm like, no, no, there is no, we're all really good at this. Sometimes a CRO can create an environment in which you are kind of forced to be a B employee when maybe really you have an A skill set, but you are put into a system that sets you up for failure. So that could be a part of it too. Mm. Just, just the systemic pressures of the of the machine that is the CRO can make some folks, because I've been there. I am a, a very dedicated worker. This is my life. <laughs> like This is probably too much of my life. But I have been, uh, I have felt the weight of some systemic pressures within a CRO where I have not been able to perform as an A-level resource to a client. Mm. So that's a part of it too. So I guess it's, it's wrong to say that clients will, there's no, there's no B team because every, it's always going to be perfect every single time you engage with the CRO. That's not true. I'm saying more like my, my, buddies, yeah. we are, we are a resources. Um, it could be that we're, and there's just a fundamental disconnect about how to, how to manage uh, the CRO or how to um, select and qualify resources that are correct for you and what you need and what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking at like totally irrelevant things and it happens. A lot of times sponsors are looking for project teams that are, like their wish list, I want to say half the time, like your wish list is like completely irrelevant, but I know what you need. So let me yeah. give you a project manager that's going to work really well with you. You know um, what else? I'm, I'm glad we're having this discussion because as you're explaining the reasons why they may feel this way, these study directors, in my experiences, they've all been at smaller, all of them have been small sponsors. <clears throat> I also think, so I'm thinking of this particular one, he did everything at that small sponsor level. I mean, he was involved in every single aspect. So he's he's going to be a bigger critic of his partners, right? The CRO. Then that same guy, let's say he worked at Eli Lilly, where... The role he's doing at the small sponsor, you probably have five people, maybe 10 people doing what he does there. So you don't notice as many faults. I think that's a lot to do with it as well, possibly. Yeah, I agree. And it's also, yeah, under understanding how, you know, what it, what it is that you're looking for. Again, I have, I have just seen so many times sponsors looking on it and they're using that very like that checklist of okay if they if they just have this magic experience they're going to be the right and I keep coming back to project manager if there's a lot of resources that make the, the the world of a clinical trial go around but I think more towards uh the project management aspect of it so you can be just again, looking at things that are totally irrelevant <laughs> to how, so like what's yeah. going to really make a meaningful impact and how you're going to work with a project manager. Um, not interviewing 
your team, like interview the people that you'd be working with. A lot of times, I mean, we don't always love this because it, it takes time away from our people and we're stretched so thin pretty right. much all the time within a CRO. So we're not always offering this up because it's, and it's not because we're like trying to wiggle out of doing it, but a lot of times sponsors don't see the value in it. So if a right. sponsor doesn't see the value in it, and I know that my resources are very, very busy and also don't want to be bothered with an interview, then I'm not going to like force it to happen. But it is like, if I'm a sponsor, I would, you want to interview your team. And I wish I could inject into sponsors, like the knowledge into how, how the CRO works. Again, the, the CRO can make a big impact on how, how things within the project. Um, oh, yeah. I wish I could like inject that knowledge into, cause I could know right away. Like I could qualify a CRO and, you know, just by having conversations with, with friends that work there. Right. And they, I give, I could ask some questions and I get an idea. Oh, okay. You're um, you guys are, are for lack of a, a more sophisticated way of explaining this, like your CRO is a hot mess right now and you're too busy, like changing over a million processes and adding some proprietary tech solutions that nobody asked for. And your project managers are too busy, like arguing with the machines um, and managing some things that are, that are probably like outside of their scope and their role that they're not going to give their, their client the, the time and attention. So there are some real horrific processes that happen within some CROs. And I wish I could inject that knowledge into like what to look for than just the piece of paper that says, ah, okay, they worked with this very specific, you know, this is a rare disease study and, and the project manager worked on this rare disease and that equals success in this clinical trial, their direct experience. And it's like, no, 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 success of a clinical trial there are a lot of components that come into how easy it's going to be for your project manager to navigate the the system, the the big system that is the CRL, and it's that's like a really long and hard conversation <laughs> to have. With Lisa, them. Lisa, right? we're gonna have to do like part two and three for sure. I could already see it, but in these last ten minutes, um, before I got to get to the site and train my staff on. Every Friday we meet. Uh, we can't ignore site payments. And yeah. we're going to squeeze it into a like, short period of time. Maybe a preview for the next podcast. Because um, I think that deserves one on its own. But sites feel like, and some small sponsors do as well, that, and in fairness to you, you're at, a, you're at smaller CROs where... I actually have not had these experiences, if I have to think about it. It's always been with the big zeros. Delayed payments. If you ask the sponsor, if I'm a site and I ask a sponsor, let's say I have a small enough sponsor, I get somebody who's in charge on the phone. They tell me, yeah, you know, we gave the CRO the money. They say they pay their people first. It's part partially our fault because we don't fund them enough, but they were also told like, take care of the sites. Where, where does, where's the issue with site payments? Because it's an issue, regardless of who's to blame, it's an issue that, I don't know, can it be solved? I mean, do CROs want to solve it? So 
let me, I am not going to make, I think it would be unfair to make this claim, but I am going to speak. So I'm not going to say that this is a, this is necessarily a trend, right? I am a sample size of one. So I can't say this is, this is a true trend. However, I have seen this play out before where <laughs> a site, okay, site's not getting paid, right? We're not getting paid because we have not gotten the money from the sponsor. Um, now I can't speak to why larger CROs, right? Or, I, I can't, I, if I had to guess, it's just, uh, you know, it's probably just the, some of the bureaucracy that goes into not quite knowing who's, who's doing what. But within, a, within say, a, a mid-sized CRO, a smaller organization, I have, or even within a CRO that is very um, kind of segmented in, they wouldn't take funds from somewhere else to make a site payment. Like it has to, everything can really only come out of your budget. So I guess gotcha. a large CRO could also be constrained by these same pressures. So when uh, there have, I have been personally involved in situations where a site has, has said, we're not getting paid and they're right, they're not getting paid. And it's a horrible situation, absolutely horrible situation, where I get the example you're giving is, hey, we talked to the sponsor and the sponsor said, yeah, well, we paid, we paid the CRL. I have been in, in actual experiences where that is not true. And the reason that that's sort of happens and why maybe a CRO might allow that to happen is because there is an understanding of a, a sponsor is very long-term in their relationships with the patient community. They're, they're developing it for the long-term, right? We made executing this one trial in a year, we're done. So there may be a, an, an invested interest in long-term maintaining sites that once they go to from one CRO to another CRO who might be better qualified to do their next phase of research for whatever reason, they want to keep relationships with that site. So again, I do not want to say that this is a trend, but I have had this direct experience where the sponsor has actually informed the sites that yes, payment has been made when it hasn't been made. And the reason for that is to allow the sponsor to maintain the long-term relationships with those sites. So yeah. there are advantages sometimes of a CRO kind of being like a fall guy. The fall guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, I don't want to say that that, that that is a trend, but it is, it is my personal experience managing trials where this has come up. With, and in your, in your case, anecdotally, 90% of your clients were small sponsors, right? Small biotechs. Yeah. Small biotechs. But because of bureaucracy and all that, the same thing could be happening with Pfizer, Lilly. It's just because they have teams where they basically try to operate like smaller pharma where they have their own budgets and it could be real segmented and it yeah. could essentially feel um feel like they like I have we might be a billion dollar pharma company, but I only, you know, had a million dollars to spend on this one trial and we went to a million and a half and now we're out of scope and I needed to get approved. Yeah, it can, it can sort of feel that way, but some, it, it's a, it's a really, really challenging thing. And I never, it's my priority in, in project management. Like you have to pay your sites, right? Because we want to maintain the relationships with our sites as well. I say sponsors, 
have that That's incentive. Sierra, yeah. We also have that incentive to maintain sure. relationships with sponsors, or with our with our sites rather. But we also have incentive in the immediate term to keep the faucet going to kind of appease our clients. So we can be put in some really, really, really challenging situations. Other, other things that might contribute to this could be that a lot of times we, we will do these uh, milestone based budgets, which I like, I personally like a milestone based budget. If both sides are willing to appropriately use a milestone-based budget. So what that means to me, when we're paid on milestones, it means I might give you a little bit of extra work in this part of the scope, and I might do a little bit less in another part of scope. And it's not a literal conversion all the time. It's we hit a milestone, we, we get the funds. And so it gives us flexibility. For me as a project manager, when I have a client that is like, you know what, um, we ended up, uh, you know, not, not using like X of this scope, but I asked you to do so much more work in this area. So it's a wash to me. That's the spirit of a milestone based payment. Is it supposed to kind of loosen us up and give us flexibility? Not everyone sees it that way at all whatsoever. So there are some folks that really treat a milestone budget more like a, a time and materials budget. And at the, when we've hit that milestone, they will say, okay, we, we, we want to know for every stitch of work that's been done, we want to do like a reconciliation of this work. And it's so time consuming <laughs> to do this, especially if you weren't planning on doing it as a, as a project manager. So that can come up where maybe we've hit a milestone. We're ready to pay you all because you started enrolling and now we get, get money for hitting our first patient milestone. But now we've hit a glitch. Because even though we agreed on this milestone payment, we've got to rework the budget every single time we hit a milestone because we're not in alignment on how we're really utilizing that. Yeah. And so it can kind of catch you off guard a little bit when that happens as a project manager and you think, oh, great. I thought, I thought this budget, at least for making payments, was as simple as hitting the button and saying we yeah. hit this. We hit this milestone. Now we have our own internal budgets, which is another conversation. Our internal budgets for how we manage resourcing is really the heart and soul of uh, project financial management within a CRO. And that's a different conversation. But the, the literal money, the literal money that comes in the door and goes out the door, um, that piece can be really abbreviated when you use like a milestone payment. And, and that's an example of, of oh, we're not even close. I thought I was just going to hit the button. I was going to get money. And it turns out we need to fight over the budget for uh, about two and a half months before we get a check. So that's, that's one of, one of the other reasons. And I know we're, we're coming up on time. <laughs> well, Lisa, I mean, I would stay another hour and a half, but my, my coordinators would kill me, but, but we already know what part two is going to be. Okay. We got to do entire segment on payments. We're going to, we're going to expand, zoom in, uh, on milestone payments, all this stuff. I do want to end it on a positive note, though, um, because I'm always negative when it comes to this stuff, mainly because I have a payroll and I have staff that I need to pay. So I get frustrated as well as a site owner. I have done this for 17 years. And just about every single study, I've had late payments. And I know I said I'm going to be positive. I'm going to be positive. Yeah, yeah. Every study just about late payments, but zero studies 
That's huge. And not all site owners are this lucky. Maybe I've been lucky. Zero studies where I have not been paid everything I've been owed. Matter of fact, I've probably had five or more studies over my career that I can remember where the CRO, not the sponsor, the CRO overpaid us at the end of the study. And then a year later, they're like, hey, can we get this back? And then I'm now I'm in the driver's seat. I'm like, hmm, maybe when we do a milestone payment, we'll get it back. Uh, but point is, positive note, you will get paid as a site. There are outlier cases where there's like scam artist sponsors here and there that run studies, go bankrupt, can't pay. There are cases like that. Do your due diligence if you're a site. But for the most part in this industry, the majority of the time, 100% of the time for me, I've always been paid. It's never on time, but it's I always do get paid. So um, just wanted to end with that. And that's always been from the CRO, Steve. All right. It, it happens eventually, right? Uh, it, it happens. And I'm it's sorry not... that it happens. And it's one of it's it's one of the the talking points that I give with sponsors sometimes when they when they ask us all these um, very detailed questions about how are you know how are you going to enroll at every you know every single patient at the site? And I say that's that's probably maybe not fully where we should focus our conversation because the sites have their expertise and and we explore and we take from them. But really what I'm going to do for you, rather than telling the site how to enroll their own patients, I'm going to effectively manage my relationship with the site. And one of the best ways I can do that is by cutting them a check when I say I'm going to cut them a check. And I need your help to do that. Lisa, you're the real MVP. You're the real MVP. I want to do studies with you, Lisa. Um, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you Look, so much. Lisa's LinkedIn's underneath. Go connect. What's wrong with you? Go connect with her right now. Stop listening. The show's over. Go connect with her in the show notes underneath YouTube. Connect, connect, connect. And then like, subscribe, comment, share. Stay tuned for part two. Okay. Lisa, we're going to have to do part two. Let's part do three. Part two. Part I'll, four. I'll talk as long as you want me to talk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you. Like, subscribe, comment, share, guys. Go connect with Lisa. Bye bye.